Yeah, so then we can transition right from there into Dunkirk, which, oh, well, I will just say about Darkest Hour, I'm not necessarily sure it should have been nominated for Best Film. Yeah. I can certainly see why uh, Gary Oldman alone would have been nominated. Right, I agree with that. I'm not, like, again, I felt like my review of this was the same as The Post in that it's kind of like I wouldn't watch it of my own volition. But I do have the perfect (laughs) transition from that movie to Dunkirk. So... Um, Darkest Hour ends how Dunkirk begins with, like, papers raining down. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was like, it's fucking owl delivery day from Harry Potter or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, but yeah, I don't remember what papers were raining down in Darkest Hour, but in Dunkirk, they're, like, walking, at the very first scene, they're walking through the city and maybe, like, and papers are raining down. Yeah, so that one's all about, like, finding hope and survival in, like, the darkest hour, I guess. Uh, yeah, more hope. basically all these... Because <laughs> basically all these um, soldiers are trapped on this beach where they're trying to, like, help out with the Battle of France, but it's obviously going horribly. And I would say um, so this is a Christopher Nolan film, and I think it was a lot more experimental than That's these types true. of movies tend to be. yeah. Oh, I'm seeing right here on the poster, it actually says, uh, when 400,000 men couldn't get home, home came for them. So it was 400,000 men we're talking about. Yeah, so you get to see the battle of uh, France or whatever from the actual war side in Dunkirk, not from the British island side. Yeah, so they're fascinating as companion pieces. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Um... Oh, and I was going to say, that reminds me, though, because you really feel bad for all these guys who are stuck on in France. Um, and right. there's a whole thing where in Darkest Hour, Winston Churchill, I, they don't even address this in Dunkirk because it doesn't happen in Dunkirk. But he sends 4,000 people to on a suicide mission to distract right. from the hundreds of thousands of people at Dunkirk. So that was horrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's the companion film yeah like, and they all die <laughs> oh my god but at least um, i guess three hundred thousand people got out of dunkirk one thing that i think is really interesting about this film is it's actually co-produced from uh companies in britain america france and uh the dutch oh interesting so it's kind of interesting that all these people were interested in telling this big story it's obviously like uh, a big moment in history that isn't covered that much um well, now we and have two movies say, from 1940. Yeah, and I was just going to say that I thought this movie was one of the most experimental movies, um, just because it is all experiential, like it's all sensory stuff. It's just it's, It could almost be a silent film because most of the movie is just like these like big shots with this like booming soundtrack that the, the overall goal is really just to make you feel for the overall soldier experience. And obviously the civilians get pulled into that too of that... Like, in movies of this type, they usually make it into this big hurrah thing, right? Like, oh man, look at these amazing soldiers, they're gonna save everyone. But this one's just like, first they're cast as boys, like, they look like boys, because that's what they are, like 18-year-olds. And then, pretty much every scene, it's just, how can we survive this horrible thing that's going on? These, like, people bombing us, and all this shit going on. These people shooting us in this boat as it's sinking. All this, like, dread and tenseness that's then, like, relieved in key moments. Yeah, because the Germans are kind of like closing in on dunkirk basically so they keep getting attacked over and over and over again right it's not like you really have a german point of view like you never see you never within the german fleets or the german troops or whatever so it's almost like they're the shadowy like force 
um, like Star Wars stormtroopers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't have personalities. It's just, like, the Germans. And they send down those little leaflets being like, we're surrounding you. Um, this movie also has an amazing cast, but you'd hardly know it because they kind of just, like, hide them amongst, like, the teeming hundreds that are in this movie. Um, but actually stars um, Chillian Murphy, Kenneth Bradna, um, James Darcy, um, Tom Hardy, Mark Rylance, uh, Harry Styles for some reason. For I know! Direction. I was like, is, what the fuck? The One Direction guy? <laughs> And I would say, um, when I originally saw the trailers for this movie, it never really grabbed me. Like, I was like, oh, whatever, some other war movie. But then when I actually saw it in theaters, um, I thought they did a really good job of dramatizing, like, this very limited scope thing. So this movie, like, the whole structure of the film itself plays with scale. It's like micro to macro. You have the three different timelines where you're with the soldiers for a week. You're with the civilian boat uh, family for a day. And then you're with the air, uh, the pilots and the fighter jets for an hour. And you see how each of their actions sort of impact the others. And how they all sort of like intersect at key moments. It's really interesting from that point of view, I thought. Like you'll see a scene like um, Tom Hardy and his pilot friend will be chasing after some bombers. And you see them blow up a ship. And then you see the exact same scene later on from the civilian fleet point of view. Where they have to be like going over there and save them. And there's this whole dramatic thing with like the oil goes up in flames and like this horrible thing of this guy have to come having to come for air even though he's gonna get burned. But I just thought it was interesting how they played with scale that way. And the technique itself of how it was filmed, like it was filmed partially in IMAX, so there's a lot of like bigness to the scale. Just like shots of these little tiny uh, soldiers and all the like uh, boats and everything. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote, like, such framing, so perspective, wow. Because they, <laughs> they kept, like, doing, like, perspective with, like, all these crowds of people, like, in lines and stuff. And, like, perspective with the dock on out to the distance. Um, yeah. So, so they were trying to be very artsy with it. Um, and it's like the soldiers don't really have individual personalities. They're kind of just, like, stand-ins for this is the soldier experience. Uh, this movie has like a little opening crawl too. It just says the enemy have driven the British and French forces to the sea and all this other stuff. <laughs> um, there's also like a stark realism to the violence in this movie. Like whenever when someone gets shot or stabbed or whatever. Ew. Like it's not like glamorized in any way. It's just like, oh, it's horrible. This guy just got shot. Uh, yeah, I hated the traumatic brain injury the most because there's like a kid right. on one of the civilian boats that gets knocked down the stairs and then they show him progressing to to death because of like the swelling and stuff, I guess. I mean, that one's particularly disturbing for a few different reasons. Um, so basically it's Mark Rylance and his two boys are going off to help uh, evacuate all the troops and they pick up Chili and Murphy who's just like sinking on this boat when when they meet him. And then he's like, you're going to Dunkirk, you, you have to turn around, you have to turn around. And then they, like, are fighting, and they accidentally knock the kid over. And, yeah, it's really disturbing just in the sense that the kid is so fragile, like, he just, like, hits his head a little bit. That's what it seems like at first, and then that somehow leads to his death. Because, like you're saying, he had more injuries than that. Yeah, he had a brain injury. Uh, I think his head was bleeding, maybe. So that's the scale, too. Like, you see, just, like, in this little moment that this kid sacrifices himself, and the dad later, like, uh, re-sacrifices him, basically. So at a certain point, the older boy and the soldier guy are like, shouldn't we turn around? Shouldn't we take him to a hospital? And, and the dad's like, but well, we've come so far. 
Right. The dad's obsessed with patriotism and like saving. He's like, no, we're answering the call. No, I mean, there's a really great line where he's like, if we don't do this, there won't be any home to return to. He's basically making the case that if they don't do this, then mm. Germany's just going to go all over Britain, too, which is what happens, obviously. Mm. Like they bomb the shit out of London. Yeah, for like a year or something, they have to put up with that before. I think the U.S. gets involved in the war, maybe. Yeah. Let's see. So this whole movie starts basically with um, you see this young British kid. Uh, he's just walking along the beach, like trying to get his bearings. I think he's trying to look for some place to poop. And then he just sees this guy like taking some shoes off a corpse and you find out later that that guy's actually a french man uh so there's a whole interesting theme there about like who are we protecting who are we helping who do we help evacuate oh yeah they were saying we won't we're not evacuating the french and so this guy snuck in um yeah but i was like oh my god i'm watching this dude take a shit (laughs) that was was like one of the first scenes There's this whole running theme in the throughout this movie just about survival and doing whatever you can to survive. So then the next thing is these these kids uh, basically uh, they help take this guy on a stretcher and they're just like trying to get on the evacuating ship so they can get the hell out of there. <laughs> like they don't really care about the cause or anything. They're just mm-hmm. like trying to survive. Yeah, everyone's trying to get boat out. Gets blown up. Yeah, and then the they show some dive bombers blow that shit up in the in the bridge they're on. So they're like having to help people like get up to survive. It's all just about like doing what you can to help people and surviving. Yeah, cuz they think uh, that they need a victory like when they come back to Britain, a, a couple of the characters survive. Um Yeah. Then he thinks that they're going to be like sp- bit on in the streets or something because they didn't win but everyone's just glad that they survived and just this whole thing about just keep on having hope and surviving i guess (laughs) yeah there's this blind man who they hate make a whole point later on uh where he's like passing out blank mitts and being like well done lads well done and the the main kid is like well we didn't do anything all we did is survive and the guy's like that's enough that's enough yeah and the next scene is the friend's like, did you see that guy? He wouldn't even look at us, like, not realizing that he was blind. Oh, okay, that's what that was, yeah. Um, I did want to mention that I thought the dogfighting sequences were all amazingly well done. They, like, basically felt like you're up there in a plane, even though, obviously, this is all just, like, fake Hollywood stuff, but... Okay, uh, um, yeah, all those, Nolan. the accuracy, oh, sorry... Oh, I was just going to say that Christopher Nolan tends to use practical effects, so you know that if you see a bunch of planes in the air, that he actually had planes in the air, and if you see a bunch of boats in the water under those planes, you know he actually had boats in the water under the planes. Oh my god. That's the part. He had giant destroyers. Yeah, that's why this is probably co-financed by so many things. I mean, he doesn't always use practical effects, obviously, like, he probably used some CGI trickery to, like, make it bigger scale. Mm. Um, what was I going to say? I don't know. Um, well, I, yeah, so the, the fact that it was, like, just trying to accurately kind of show you this war stuff going on, like, the battling and stuff, I, I just felt like I was watching a History Channel reenactment with, like, a bigger budget. Right, I mean, I can definitely see the case for that. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, it is basically the feel of it, like, it's not trying to make a big point, or, yeah, it is trying to make a point, but it's not... Like hitting you over the head with it. It's not yeah, like it's more like it's this not like trying to do more than present this very small scale story relative to the whole war. Obviously, 
Yeah, it's like accurately portraying the events of Dunkirk or something. Right. Um, I did like uh, when they had Tom Hardy and his friend in the air uh, at some point, he's like worried about the fuel leaking. So they have this whole like running thing about Tom Hardy uh, every once in a while, like does math with the gasoline. I thought that was kind of funny. Just like cool. And I thought the actual, like we were saying about the post, just like seeing all this 1940s tech, like how they deal- dealt with stuff was really interesting. Yeah, it's another period piece. They have this whole scene where they have uh, the boys finally make it onto a big destroyer in the middle of the night, and then that gets bombed, so then they're all just, like, trying to scrabble out to get out, like rats in a sinking ship, basically. Then they uh, yeah, that was, that was horrible. There's a few scenes like that, actually. Of sinking show, ships. Um, yeah, they show Tom Hardy's uh, friend land in his plane, and he's, like, trapped in the cockpit, so he's, like, scared trying to get out, too yeah it's all about how like fear leads us to make rash decisions like that's why george x only gets killed um or why when they're in the other boats that the germans are shooting at for target practice the other soldiers are like making sure to keep the guy quiet and stuff mm-hmm. and they want to they want to sacrifice the french guy right it's all about like what does fear make us do oh i did want to mention uh the kid who played george he also was really good in this movie called The Killing of a Sacred Deer that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. In that one, he plays, like, a really creepy character. Ew. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. I, yeah, so I, the thought, mood- I thought that Jarhead did the waiting thing better. Or I thought that yeah, it was kind true. of like <laughs> Jarhead. Because they kept being like, but you can practically see Britain from here. Um, and being, and like the whole thing is like building this suspense with the violin music, like the string music getting more and more faster, uh, faster and faster. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed this, but the soundtrack actually incorporates kind of the time dilation. So it'll be, it was almost like Inception because it's, it's Hans Zimmer again. So you hear sort of a ticking sound in some of the soundtrack and it gets like faster or slower depending on which of the three, uh, different storylines we're following oh and then at first they were i thought this was going to be a movie comprised entirely of the inception horn sound because they just use that a lot too, <laughs> that <burr. laughs> yeah i would say this is more about sort of building up and up and up and then there's like a release um like there's that great sequence at the end when tom hardy is finally able to take out the bomber he's been following for practically the whole movie and it's mm-hmm. like the tensest moment because you see all these ships are completely vulnerable and Kenneth Branagh and the other, other commanders who've been talking the whole movie are all so, so, like worried. That yeah, he saves a bunch of help. people. And you see all the civilians like scrabbling around and it's just like the music is building and you're like, oh fuck, is he going to be able to do it? And then he managed to take it out and then there's like a release in the music. Mm. <laughs> the cum shot, if you will. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Tom Hardy's cum shot. Um, oh yeah, and then we know that everything, like, uh, 300,000 people live, because I guess they're, like, talking about it later, and they're reading the newspaper with Winston Churchill's speech. Right. So we we saw that on The Darkest Hour, and then we get to hear it read by, um, the one, the guy we saw from the beginning, I guess, the main character. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> it's a really cool connection. <clears throat> and also, um, I thought there was this really nice moment of just, like, humanism and empathy, which I think sort of through a line for the entire movie uh which is just when tom hardy um sees his friend get shot down he's like trying to radio him just being like are you okay are you okay and there must be some problem with their thing because you see from the other point of view that he can't communicate either 
but he just like can see in his eyes that he's like worried and like wants to go back but he knows he has to keep going it's just like nice to hear him like care and then later you see the like um family pick up that pilot Mm-hmm. there's a, a color scheme that keeps getting repeated throughout the movie they show like greens and blues and it's contracted to like the reds that they use in the nighttime scenes when they're like sinking in the ship mm-hmm. um oh there was this really creepy scene um so basically after the bomber gets blown up the kids are just like floating in the water with their um life preservers and they're, the guy's just like, you have to float to the shore, unfortunately, because we don't have more boats. Yeah. So then they show him get to the shore, and then the next thing is this, like, soldier guy just walks right into the ocean, because he's like, fuck it. Oh, yeah, that, so yeah, they walk into, a lot of people are trying to walk and swim, it, uh, like, the English Channel, but then they just die and then get washed back up on shore. Yeah, and then there's this great moment. Um, they're showing some more of the like command people, and when the guy says something like "the tide's coming back in" or "the tide's turning," and that's the moment when, in all three storylines, each of the characters has to make the decision to like sort of sacrifice something in order to help out more people. Um, at that point, you see Tom Hardy like realizes that he's not going to have enough gasoline to make it back to his base, uh, and also like keep following his bomber. So that's his moment of like he could turn around, but instead he just keeps going. And the same thing happens with, like, the family on the boats, where they're, like, um... They could turn around. Yeah, the kid's dying, and it's like, should we turn around and get help? And he's like, but we have to keep going. And then the same exact thing happens with the soldiers, where... it's That one's a lot smaller. That one's, like, when they're in the hiding in the boats, and there's some Germans that are just, like, practice shooting at the boat, and there's a bunch of sh- soldiers hiding in there. And mm-hmm. basically, they want to sacrifice the French guy. And that decision is just the British soldier being like, I can either just go with this and let them sacrifice this guy and all this will be meaningless. Or I can like sort of stand up for him and be like, even though he's not one of us, he is in a larger sense. Mm-hmm. So that's his like moment if he could like turn his back on this guy, but instead he helps him out. Oh, the tide yeah, was turning. Yeah. And then <laughs> I also wanted to mention that I thought thematically this movie was kind of similar to The Dark Knight Rises in a weird way, because that movie is also about like war and fear and like Tom Hardy wearing a face thing. Oh my god, yeah. And that one's also about like chaos and how it's hard to make decisions and chaos and sacrifice and stuff. Hmm. Um yeah, I think that's basically most of what I wanted to say. Uh, this film obviously has like a lot of really nice filmic moments, like classically filmmaking moments. So I think that's why it's probably like one of the front runners for possibly getting the best picture. Oh, I also liked when they discovered that the kid was dead, George. Um, it's like they saved a bunch of soldiers from the bombed uh, bomber or tanker. Mm-hmm. and they're getting onto the boat and they're like mo- trying to move the guy they're like can we move this kid and he's like hey be careful with him and they say he's dead mate and that's how you find out that the kid's dead oh and yeah and the, the older brothers just like then be bloody careful and i also thought it was interesting at the end he chooses not to like confront Chilean murphy he just like pretends that the brother's still alive because that could potentially be followed up and be like a war crime or something I thought it, yeah, I thought it was to save him because he's already, like, in shell shock and he seemed, like, stressed out about it. So I thought yeah. it was, like, to spare his feelings. I will say that whole sequence we talked about with Tom Hardy um, taking out the bombers, like, at a certain point he literally runs out of gas and he's just, like, um, 
he's just a glider and he still like manages to take out the last few boats or the last few planes i thought that was like one of the biggest fuck yeah moments that i've seen in movies this year like that was the only scene this year that i wanted to like stand up and be like yeah Mm? you did you did it (laughs) and then you see like sort of the point of view of the men viewing him from this from the um from the ground and kenneth brown as being like yay and i don't know it's a good moment but you didn't really care for this film right maybe you should talk more about that (laughs) oh yeah no i didn't like that it was like there was no narrative it was like the history channel but no narrative that the history channel has so i was just like who is this white guy? Which one is he? Which one's he doing? I don't know which plane we're, guy we're looking at because they have like their face things covered, their faces covered. Right. Um, um, but like I was saying, that was kind of the idea. It was almost subversive in a way, where as opposed to something like Saving Private Ryan, where you get to intimately know all these different characters, and this one it's like, no, you're not going to really get to know any of them. You're just going to have to like make up what you want. Well, I just wouldn't have been able to follow the story if I couldn't read the Wikipedia page. Yeah. I mean, this movie's all about, like, small, humble triumphs, not, like, about big action moments. Um, and then, yeah, I oh, thought it was, end, like... Huh? I was just gonna say, and then at the end, you find out that this uh, family, uh, the Mark Rylance family, that they apparently had another son that had already died in the war. Uh, he was, like, an RAF pilot who got shot down, and that's why they're, like, so into... so gung-ho about doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you learn their motivation, but not other people's, I guess. Yeah. And then Kenneth Bragner, when everyone's like finally off the beach, he's like, I'm gonna stay here for the French. So it's kind of assumed that he's gonna die. Again, about sacrifice. That guy sacrifices himself. Uh, Tom Hardy sort of sacrifices himself, because at the end he gets captured by the Germans. Mm-hmm. And they sacrifice the George character. And there was a really nice moment at the end when they're sort of like uh, counterposing... Uh, the two kids are reading the article on the train and they contrast that with Tom Hardy like finally just having a moment of peace like when he's gliding down to the beach and the music's kind of like just nice I I don't know I guess I really like this movie like I saw it once in theaters and then I saw it again for this and I liked it even more this time I thought the last shot was weird it's just like the main kid looking up then down to the side and then they just end the movie (laughs) that was a kind of an odd choice but I feel like Christopher Nolan kind of likes to do that a lot. Just like have one image that you're going to end on. Like the fucking top in Inception. Oh, yeah. Or, <laughs> the fucking top. Or like every one of these movies has something like that. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I was just grossed out by the violence because it's not the kind of movie I would typically watch. It's probably grossed me out the most out of all nine of these movies. Which violence in particular? You mean the kid hitting his head? The kid hitting his head. Like, you're just watching people drown and get shot at. And I'm just like, no, I can already see that this is being set up to be bad. I don't need to keep seeing it. Right. I mean, the overall message is that this stuff is happening and we should think about it and think about that as horrible. We shouldn't send kids to war for no good reason. Yes. I just normally wouldn't watch that movie because I already agree. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, I guess that kind of covers pretty much everything about this movie that we wanted to say, so we should probably just move on. Okay. Alright, next we're going to talk about The Phantom Thread, which sounds like a scary ghost movie, but instead is really boring. Yeah, it does sound like a ghost movie. Um, Yeah, so this happens in the generic kind of like 1950s, but this is more rich British people. Yeah, I honestly wasn't sure what the time period is when I was watching it. 
I wouldn't have known just from watching it. Yeah, I had to, I did look that up. Um, so the guy, uh, Daniel Day Lewis is a couture dressmaker. Um, so you see all these like rich British people that he's making dresses for and then through his business, he himself is wealthy too. I mean, can I just say from the outstart that I'm not quite sure why Paul Thomas Anderson, Thomas Anderson, and Daniel Day Lewis want to tell the story? Like, um, did you based think on their other movies that they've made? Yeah, did you think that was strange. weird? How Daniel Day Lewis was like, I'm retiring, and he was saying something about we made a really sad movie. Like, we stepped back and we were like, this is really <laughs> sad or something, and he wanted to end on this movie. I thought that was right, weird. Yeah, that's. That's exactly what Janet said. She was like, uh, my wife, she was like, um, why was this the movie that caused him to retire from acting? (laughs) It's just so sad. I don't know. (laughs) I did think this movie made an interesting counterpoint to There Will Be Blood, which they both obviously also made together. Just in this one, like in that one, he was like a violent sociopath. In this one, he's just kind of like a narcissistic sociopath who does like more emotional, abusive stuff. Yeah. Like basically, at a certain point, all my notes for this movie were just listing all the ways that Daniel Day Lewis kind of like uh, negates uh, his lady friend and all the like shitty asides and stuff he does to her. Yeah, and he's mean to That's all the people the he is. works with, um, and yeah, they're all like women. Yeah, like he bitchy guy because he because and of course he's like the person in charge of the company. It's like how because he's a man. But all the women are, like, the people actually f- laboring and making the dresses, but he's the designer. It kind of reminds me how, like, right. men are chefs and women are cooks or whatever. I mean, the same kind of thing goes on today still, right, in the fashion world? Like, that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah. Like, people taking credit for all these people's actual work. Yeah, so he's pretty much a horrible person. Um, and he's very particular about all these things right. and, like, critical of everything. Um, yeah, it's kind of just an asshole, the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, and then he's like, he and one of his weird particular things is just like picking out this lady who is a waitress, and he's just like obsessed with right. her all of a sudden. Well, they kind of start the movie out showing his, him like having the waning moments of another relationship, so you can see this is kind of just like a pattern for him. He kind of like just finds women and uses them, and then like disposes of them when it's convenient for him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually care about them. Yes. Um... But you also kind of get the sense that people just put up with him because he does produce this great art. So you can kind of see it maybe somehow. He lives in a bubble. Other ways to other industries. Yeah. He works with his sister, Cyril, and she kind of doesn't put up with any of his shit. There's this like great scene where she's like, well, don't do that shit with me because, you know, I don't put up with it. Yeah. His sister helps run the like logistics of their business. I mean, kind of like um, what you were saying about Dunkirk, this is a movie that I probably wouldn't have sought out if not for this, like, <laughs> thing we're doing. Yeah. Um, oh, I was gonna say, yeah, my main thing with this movie is just, like, it seems like a Manic Pixie Dream Girl movie where the only conflict, really, is this guy's... It's it's himself is the conflict. His internal well, conflict. I didn't really think... Yeah, I didn't really think the woman was a Manic Pixie Dream Girl. If anything, I would talk more about the idea of muses. Like, clearly, he uses her as a muse. Like, right. finding some, like, high fashion lady, he just, like, this waitress is nice. I'm gonna, like, become obsessed with her. And I thought it was a really interesting casting choice, too, because if you just saw this woman, like, I'm not trying to deride the actress or anything, but I'd be kind of like, why her? Like, what's the big deal with her? 
Right. Yeah, they kind of make her look average with her dre- with her how she's dressed and has her hair up and um she would just blend in as another waitress or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's just like he just like puts all this stuff on her. I guess that's why she kind of like manic pixie dream girl, I guess. Yeah, it's not that she herself isn't interesting. It's like how he treats her as yeah, like his by- muse. Over the course of the movie, like, obviously, the audience's sympathy is totally with her, and there's also, like, him talking to his other high-fashion people, like, they're playing uh, backgammon, and he's all being dicky about the rules, like, you can't do that. Yeah, because of his class differences. And he's talking with his other friend, and she's, like, insulting her, being like, oh, what's her culture? Like, I don't, she doesn't speak the language, and saying all these, like, woolly racist things, her culture, or prejudice, I guess. Yeah, she was, like, really gossiping hard about his wife to him or whatever, his lady to him. Um, And I was just, like, the weird clothes of the era. I was not that impressed. I was like, these are some ugly clothes people are wearing. Yeah. um, I don't know. I guess that's just when fashion was kind of born in a way or, like, the modern-day fashion world. Yeah. Going to all these, like, fucking trade shows and making such a big goddamn deal about it all the time. Yeah, because they have, like, fashion shows. Yeah, he's always fussing over the models and, like, being a perfectionist and whatever. Let's see. There's several lines that sort of resonate with the title. Um, he says something at one point about the dead watch the living. And he talks at length at, at another moment where he actually explains what a phantom thread is. It's just like he hides little messages and stuff in clothing. At a certain point, uh, she finds one of the messages and it just says, um, never cursed. Yeah, that was weird. Oh, it was yeah, for the it was for someone's is. wedding. So I was like, "Is that like a a blessing you would give someone? Like, I wish for you to never be cursed." <laughs> I mean, it almost made me think of magic. Like, he also mentions that he has um, a lock of his mom's hair stitched into one of his particular jackets, and he says that she's the one who taught him everything about his trade. Yeah, he's obsessed with his on mom. In the movie, Later on in the movie, he, like, is deathly ill, um, and he hallucinates the ghost of his mother. And that scene, I think, was actually the strongest thing of the whole movie. Like, without that scene, I don't think I would like it nearly as much. Um, Oh, my God! Says all the stuff about how he keeps thinking about her, and, like... He misses her. He wakes up, and he's sad that she's not there, or something like that. Yeah, I thought that scene was, like, the strongest for making an overall point for what the hell this movie was. Um, Yeah, there's um, definitely, like, a mother, an Oedipus kind of thing. Or wait, no. He doesn't... I guess... Well, yeah, he's into his mom. Yeah. He'd fuck his mom. I wish I wrote down some more lines about those (laughs) things. I wish I wrote down some more lines about those things, but I can't quite remember what exactly he said. Um, I think he did say something like, there is a phantom haunting this house, and a house that doesn't change the dead thing. That's when he decides to propose to, uh, the, uh, to Alma. Yeah, there's definitely, oh, death, there, I wrote, yeah, there's definitely a death in clothes thing going on. Um, like someone, yeah. like a fan comes up to him and says, I want to wear your dress when I'm dead, like in her coffin or whatever. Um, and he spoke of his dead mom watching over him and approving his dress approving of the dresses he's making yeah so yeah it's also funny like Hmm? like when they meet in the restaurant it's almost supposed to be a meat cute but everything if anything it's kind of like a meat creep oh yeah um 
Oh, I think I realized. I think I realized what it is about her because Alma, who's the waitress, she trips a little bit on her way to one of the tables, and then that seems to charm the shit out of him, and he becomes right. obsessed he likes with that her. She's like chaos. Yes, so yeah, he, she's he's into the fact that she's not she's like not perfect. perfect. Yes, and then ultimately at the end, her controlling him allows him to not be in control, and so she just needs to be the dom in the relationship. <laughs> exactly. That's why he's drawn I, to her. Well, she kind of does become the dom, right? Like, and he likes it because she's like poisoning him, like right she likes when him when he's sick. Right, when he succumbs to her will, he ends up liking it, basically. I thought they were like chanterelles or something, but I guess they must have been some sort of poison mushroom. They said the ones with gills are poisonous. Like, she had to, they looked very similar to the edible ones, apparently. Right. Oh, so apparently uh, this actress, Vicky Cripps, is from Luxembourg. So she's mainly been in Luxembourgish, uh, French, and German productions. But she's been acting for a while, so it's not like she disappeared. One oh, day. yeah, she did have a different accent than a British accent. Um, I did notice um, when the movie sort of started that there was almost like a psycho Hitchcockian vibe to it. Like, I noticed a number of the shots were almost as if this were psycho. Like, they have this whole scene where he's first, like, talking to her and s- set up the framing is exactly the same as in Psycho when Norman Bates is talking to the Marion character in that movie. Yeah, so, and there's um, I got a Crimson Peak kind of horror vibe with the brother sister oh, yeah. relationship going on. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah, so I even, could um, see that. There's even a shot of him like putting his eye up to like a like a little peephole, and that was definitely psycho. Mm. Oh, he said there is an air of quiet death in the house, in this house, and I do not like the way it smells. I don't even know what that was about, but another death quote. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, there was a uh, weird. I, oh, sorry. I did want to want to mention that the soundtrack was amazing. I think um, Johnny Greenwood did an amazing job with it, and that was another oh, thing yeah. that sort of like propelled the movie along. When otherwise, I probably would have gotten really bored. Yeah, I for I didn't realize he did the soundtrack. Yeah, it's kind of just like very elegant soundtrack. Like it just sort of like sweeps you up into it. Yeah. But this is such a strange movie. I just don't understand who the um, key audience for this movie would have been. Right, because it's like a twisted romance in a way. Um, there's a, there's pairs, a weird... Hmm? It kind of pairs nicely with Call Me By Your Name. Oh, yeah. Uh, kind of a power dynamic in a relationship, basically, because he's the rich uh, man and she's like the working class woman or whatever. Oh, it's gothic. It's kind of gothic. Yeah. Um, So there's some weird things with... Oh, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. There's like a weird, uh, like, hunger, smell, like, sensory themes. Because she is introduced to him as a hungry boy. Because he orders, like, a shit ton of food from her as a waitress. And then that keeps being brought on throughout the movie about how he's hungry or he's not hungry or... Um, oh, one of his, like, bitchiest moments when, this, like, he makes this big deal about some asparagus she makes. He's like, I know you prepared this the wrong way on purpose, because I know you li- know I liked it with salt and oil, and you prepared it with butter. Yes, butter is a running theme. He hates butter for some reason, and prefers oil. Yeah, I'm oil. like, is this dude lactose intolerant? Like, what's his deal? Yeah, he's very oh, particular. Say, 
I was just going to say, I remembered, uh, this movie reminded me of Wuthering Heights. It's kind of that exact same dynamic, mm-hmm. because that movie is all about this, like, brooding, almost violence relationship with all these, like, horrible moods. It's, like, obviously very toxic. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's almost like the exact same uh, situation, like this, like, overbearing guy and this, like, sort of submissive woman. Um. Or Byronic, I guess. Wait, what are the five senses? Sight, smell. Oh, because sight is the video. Hearing. We can't we can't touch things, but they do sound emphasis by having really loud, like cooking sounds and cutting sounds, and like yeah. that really bothers him that she butters her toast really loudly. Oh yeah, could you not off the toast? toast. So yeah, so they really the emphasize the toast sounds. is intolerable. Yeah, and they talk about different smells. Like the sister comes up and smells her and says what she smells like when she first meets her. Yeah. Um, let's see weird. I wrote down so I wrote down this whole list of all the like dicky things he does um, at some point she brings him tea in his like workshop and he's like I didn't ask for tea oh yeah she, uh, he's mad that she interrupted him yeah um, he's clearly he's got anxiety or something yeah there's another scene with the backgammon where he's just like horrible to her for no reason he tells her um, you have no breasts or something what was it? He tells her you have no breasts or small breasts. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> another time when she interrupts him, he's like, well, I'm still thinking about the interruption, aren't I? Or something like that. Oh, my God. Basically, every line he says is just, like, tinged with this disapproval. Oh, he said maybe you have no taste when she was critiquing a fabric pattern. Right. So you do kind of come to wonder, like, why is this woman even with this guy? Because... She has no reason to be there. She could just leave at any moment. Right. I think she does get caught up in the rich people and the culture. I think she wants to be like that princess he's making a dress for. Oh, yeah. And they have all scene where she's like, can I help out with this, making this uh, garment? Mm-hmm. You know, let her help out. But then there's another scene where uh, the guy's like talking about her, thinking that she does, she's not around. He's just like saying he's she's cast a shadow over this house. She's not like fitting in to his sister, and then like the sister lets him keep talking, even though he, she can see that Alma's right there. Yeah, that was really and he, awkward. And he makes a comment that's like, "You're both so polite, aren't you?" Yeah, he's pissed at both of them because I think the sister and Alma kind of become they become an alliance to kind of yeah. fight back against his Counter. particularities and how he's always mad at them for like messing with his schedule. Yeah, it's and they're not, just like sick like of it. Can, it's not like he can fire her. Yeah, that's his sister, sister right, exactly. She's one of the only ones who can uh, stand up to him. You can't fire me, I'm your sister. <laughs> <laughs> um, But I don't know, this was a weird one. Like I said, I almost feel as though this were a counterpoint to There Will Be Blood. Because this one's also all about toxic masculinity and how he like isn't able to relate to anybody, and he's also almost right. like a sociopath because he clearly doesn't care that much about anyone. Yeah, but he obviously he only- has pent up feelings that he can't express because of the toxic masculinity culture. Yeah, and the only time he can really relate to anyone is when he's deathly ill when she starts like poisoning him with these mushrooms, I guess. Yeah, and then they just agree to keep doing that. Is that the end of the movie? They're just gonna keep. I guess so. <laughs> Having her yeah, take care of him every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> that was I will weird. Say, um, <laughs> I will say Daniel Day-Lewis' look in this movie was very strong. Like, he looked cool with his, like, hair. That's and true. His, like, his bow ties. Bow tie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, there's that amazing scene where after he's made the dress for this, uh, what was it, the princess? Yeah. 
Then he's like ordering them to like strip the dress off her because he needs it. Oh my god. Oh no, that wasn't for the princess. That was a different that because the princess was a wedding dress. That was like some lady who got super drunk and it was like her engagement party or something, like a political oh, right. engagement. Yeah. This movie's like almost hypnotic, but in how anti-romantic it is. Like it draws me along. I'm not bored or anything, but I'm also just like, why is any of this happening? What is this movie? Right, yeah, I felt the same way, like kind of alienated by watching it. I wasn't sure what to make of it. Yeah. Um Yeah, it's weird that he kept that she kept poisoning him. Yep. <laughs> really that was a weird conclusion. <laughs> And especially I, at the end, it was kind of gross where he's like sitting with like the little bowl to catch his puke, and he's like, "You need, you should leave. Get on out of here!" Shit himself. I'm about to poop and barf at the same time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, oh, that was uh, I. I kept thinking of how to, it was like a Fifty Shades of Grey relationship, and I was like, couldn't they right. just do BDSM instead of the mushroom poisoning? Yeah. <laughs> I almost feel like I'm missing something with this movie. I don't know. I don't think I'm the right audience, which is also how I kind of feel about Calling By Your Name. Like, I felt like it had tight, um, like, motifs and themes throughout. Yeah, but... I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson's a great director. Right, but I don't know what the point of it was. Oh, there was that whole scene also where it's, like, New Year's Eve, and she's like, you need to come dancing with me, or, like, we need to go dancing. And he's like, no, I refuse. And then she, like, goes by herself, and then he goes and, like, sees her in the crowd. And he can just sort of, like, observe her, like, how she's, like, having fun without him. Right, he's pissed about that. Yeah. And then he can feel bad for being such a dick. Uh, And then they sort of reference that at the end. They show them dancing. Like, I guess that was supposed to happen after that. She Um, was envisioning their future. Yeah. She has this whole monologue where she's like, I can see the whole future. where We'll have kids and I'll keep helping you and all this stuff. Yeah, I somehow don't think that that's what happened for her, but okay. Yeah, it's like a flash forward <laughs> scene where she's like talking about how we'll get nostalgic for all the lunches we'll throw and all our friends will be there and our old lovers and we'll have babies and it'll be amazing. I don't know, maybe she's delusional. Maybe that's the takeaway. Yeah. I'll change hmm. this horrible man. All yeah. these movies are actually about Beauty and the Beast. This is Beauty and the Beast. Shape of Water is Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. You're right. Um, yeah, that's basically all I had to say about this movie kind of a weird one yes so that'll take us to the other romantic film this year uh well besides shape of water yeah call me by your name okay so this, this one i probably had the most problems with to be honest this one takes place in 1983 so it is it is also like a summer vacation before the internet I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the internet just stole everyone's interest. Because there's a lot of, like, sitting around in this movie, and they're just, like, out by the water, and I'm just like, oh, right, this is what people did before the <laughs> internet. Right, I guess this movie's supposed to be a romantic, but sort of, like, gay romantic. Um, I thought it was I the know. it was the gay male gaze. Yeah, but I don't know, I guess it just didn't work that well for me. I mean, Italy's cool, obviously, and there's a lot of, like, lush, uh, interesting <laughs> visuals and, like, this whole idea of just you're constantly by the sea so you can be swimming all the time or pools or whatever. Yeah, there's definitely a water theme or a motif. Like, they keep talking about depth and deep going into the deeps, and then also there's a lot of swimming and water holes. Right, and it's also that whole thing about, like, where is touch okay or where is, like, nudity okay because 
like before they even get together or anything, uh, there's a thing where Army Hammer puts his hand like on his shoulder and like, gives him like a little back rub, and I'm like, well, that's inappropriate to do. Yeah, because it was a 17 year old, and it was his boss's uh, son, like his his professor's son. That was kind of weird. Let's see. Um, so the guy who directed this is named Luca Guadagino, and apparently this is supposed to be part of some Desire trilogy he made. Um, so he made another movie, I Am Love, in 2009, and another one called A Bigger Splash in 2015 mm. that I guess have similar themes. I don't really know anything about those movies. Nope. But I did want to mention that this movie, uh, both the novel and the screenplay, were written by James... Oh, wait, sorry. The screenplay was written by James Ivory, but it's based on a 2007 novel by Andrew Asiman. But, um, so this guy, James Ivory, is famous for having made a bunch of movies with, uh, another guy named, um, Ismail Merchant. So he's made various movies that are kind of similar and actually directed a bunch. Uh, he made Maurice, which is based on a story by Marcel Proust, which is very similar, except in that one, it's like the 1800s. And it's two men, not two. Ooh, boy super man. homoerotic. Yeah, so it's the exact same thing. It's like, oh my god, I'm discovering I'm gay, and I'm gonna start fucking. It's like a high class guy uh, starts fucking this like uh, farm boy, basically farm man. No, wait. Oh, you're talking about Maurice. I thought you were saying Maurice. The boy was, yes. Yeah. Sorry. So he. So this guy has made a bunch of movies of this same similar vein. He made A Room with a View, uh, Howard's End, The Rains of the Day. Um, yeah, basically a bunch of these, like, romantic, I guess they'd be called chick flicks. Um, I mean, I guess... They have that, like, sort of slow, slow pace. I mean, I think that these, this is important in representation, too, instead of just having the heterosexual male gaze to also have a gay male gaze, because it very much objectifies the male body throughout this movie. Right, like, right from the beginning, because the whole credit sequence is sort of over these, like, Greek nudes, Greek statues and stuff. And you find out later that uh, the guy's dad is... He's a professor. um, Yeah, so he's a professor of archaeology, so he's, like, really into all this stuff. And classics and and Greeks um, and Romans. That's why this guy, Oliver, comes to work with him. Yes, he's, like, a postdoc or a PhD student, or I don't know what he's doing, but, yeah, he's some sort of Uh assistant student. (laughs) Oh, we should also mention that this guy, Michael Strahlberg, uh, is in three of the different best... Oh yeah, what did he play in this movie? Oh, he's the dad, Michael Stolberg. Yeah, he's in The Post, he's in this movie, and he's also in The Shape of Water in pretty prominent roles. So I don't know what what he's doing with this agent, but he's had a really good year. He's like, tune me into the Oscar bait movies, I want to be in all of them. (laughs) I mean, maybe he'll like it casting all the movies next year, too. They're like, oh, this guy's some sort of a... He's a good luck charm, yeah. Wait, who was he in The Post? A reporter, or uh, I don't know. He just played like one of the other politicians or something. It was like not oh, like a girl. Okay. Um, so who is so Army all about Hammer? This kid. Uh, Army Hammer's. It's kind of funny because he became famous for the Social Network. Where oh. He played like twins, the Winklevoss twins. Uh. So it's funny that he was known in that movie for being young, and then like flash forward to now, and he's the old man. Yeah, and <laughs> right. attracting the like little seventeen-year-old, which I think still think it's really creepy. Just the like plot of this film. It's obviously that whole like idealized man-boy Greek love thing, where the older man teaches like the younger boy who they still like resonate with each other how to be a man. Yeah, the only thing was because it's so like um, Army Hammer's character um, 
Oliver. Oliver is like super repressed. So even though he technically right. has more experience and we can maybe probably assume he's had sex with men before, he still is like in his own right figuring it out because he's right, been he's like his, ashamed. Yeah, his he comes from a conservative family. Um I mean, yeah, it's funny because he'll like flirt with the kid and then pull back and like ignore him and or or they'll like kiss on the field and then like he'll ignore him for a long time. I felt like this was yes. It was. I felt like it was like the Blue Balls movie because it was like (laughs) just all this tension, and I'm just like, oh my god! Like by the end of it, I was like pleased, or you know, when before they fuck, I was like, please just have sex. Yeah, I was like, I can't take it anymore. The suspense. (laughs) All these hot naked bodies under the Italian sun. Yeah, no, it should have been an amazing movie. Like we should. It should have been a porn. Yeah, we should all see the porn, like, not call me by your name parody. But, but okay. uh, this movie, I wasn't that into, to be honest. It was, uh, like, rich it was fine, people. It was, like, not that great. It was, like, rich people travel channel. Because that's, uh, somehow the family, Elio, the, the 17-year-old's family is very wealthy. Like, right, they, they inherited this big house. Yeah, they summer in Italy. And apparently that girl was his girlfriend, Mauricia. Yeah, he tries to have... Uh, a relationship with a woman but it doesn't really work out obviously because he's not that into it oh and the most important scene we can pretty much just reduce this to the (laughs) the peach sex right the peach fucking scene yeah it's like American Pie but with a peach (laughs) he's the peach fucker (laughs) that scene was gross um, I thought it was especially gross. Like they really played up the sound effects. Like I don't know what they were doing uh, behind the scenes, but they were like probably fucking a uh, like pumpkin with their hands or something. Like, it was really gross. The sounds. I was paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He like hollows out a peach and then fucks it until he comes in it, and then the other guy like wants to eat it, and he's like, "No, don't eat it." But I thought the um the it was really gross that he got the juice all over him because he's like de- he's coring out the peach with his hands and then he just lets the juice get all over his body and then he falls asleep in the like sticky right. peach juice and then that's why and then that's why army hammer can taste it on his dick i guess he's like what have you been up to <laughs> i mean he's obviously thinking of them having sex like i think it's sort of implied when he's right it. he's thinking of probably anuses you're right thinking of like the sexual juices and stuff all over their bodies yes he's thinking of yeah but oh and i read that the book um because i did want uh oliver to eat the peach uh and (laughs) in the book book, he he does apparently the book is even better so now i'm like ooh, i should read the book (laughs) let's all get the calling by your name extended unedited edition eats the peach (laughs) director's cut memorable yeah eat the peach right i mean Um, yeah it's like romantic and there's nice imagery like they go oh i forgot to mention in the last movie there's a nice scene where they go to the alps it's very picturesque and in this movie there's another scene like that when they go to this mountain valley it's like beautiful and there's this whole thing about this field that he keeps going back to like he first starts flirting with arnie hammer there and then he brings uh mauricia there and they have sex it's like the same field i think right oh yeah you're right um yes (laughs) There's some nice, like, musical touches. He, like, they, like, meet some friends, and they're listening to, like, some David Bowie and stuff since the 80s. Oh, and Elio's very musical, because he takes uh, compositions and kind of puts them in other composers' styles, and he's very creative right. and intelligent, yeah, which is... Scene. I guess that's that's the only thing that kind of redeemed the fact that it was, like, this older guy and this 17-year-old, is, like, they were right. kind of intellectual equals, because Elio was raised by this, like, professor guy, so he's, like... 
super smart or whatever. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. They're like at the same maturity level just because Army Hammer is, I guess, a little immature and he's like right. way precocious. Yes. Yeah. So it's oh, like at first was, they're just um, being like buddy, buddy, just like we're going to go swimming together and we're going to talk about random shit together, like World War One battles and stuff like that. But then you realize it's like a much a romantic attraction, not just a friend attraction. And there's a whole thing with Jewishness, too, because when he first meets Arnie Hammer, he has like the Star of David. And then later on, he's like, I had the same star. And he's like feeling his chest and stuff. Yeah, it's really um, different. Well, so our, uh, Oliver came from like a conservative religious family, and he like more proudly uh, wears the necklace, I guess. And um, he, and Elio is like, oh, my mom says we're like discreet about it or something, and he's like hiding uh, okay. it. But then he starts wearing it like how that. Oliver does. So I guess they're the more like liberal European family who's accepting of homosexuality. Um, and Oliver is the more conservative American family. Yeah, so I guess it's sort of romantic in the sense that the reason they're feeling romantic is because they like have so much in common, and mm-hmm. that's why when they have like their sex scene, uh, they they say like the title of the movie, "Call me by your name, and I'll call you by mine." So Elio calls uh, Oliver. Elio. He says all. Yeah, he's like Elio, Elio, Elio to Oliver. <laughs> Um, oh, and there's a fly motif, which I'm going to assume, like, because hmm. there's always, like, a buzzing fly sound in a lot of scenes. And part of that's because they have all the apricots and peaches on the property, the stone fruits. Um, right. And I guess I assume that that's, like, the buzzing. Like, they don't want to say that they're into each other because it's, rep- it's like, looked down upon to be gay. Um, yeah, there's also a lot of masturbation in this film. Like, they have the kid masturbating earlier in the movie, and then he does the thing with the peach. He smells Oliver's shorts and puts his head inside his shorts, and then yeah. starts, like, miming, doing sex positions. Right. That's pretty, um, yeah, basically this was some softcore, I would say. Yeah, um, there's this whole thing, too, when they're first being friends, where Oliver starts to, like, mess around with some of the local girls, and Elio gets all jealous about it. It's like, that should be me. <gasps> oh, yeah, he is jealous of him uh, flirting. I mean, I would say that Elio's definitely supposed to be, like, the twink, right? Like, when they show them naked <laughs> together, he almost looks like a girl. Like, if you can almost see him as a girl. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I Which, again, actually... goes back to the whole Greek love thing, where it's supposed to be, like, a strong man and, like, a little boy. I think it's weird how... It, like in Lady Bird, for example, they show them having their her having sex for the first time, but it's like more explicit than they're like allowed than they did in Call Me by Your Name. And I don't know if it's just because gay sex would be more taboo or like seen as more explicit, but they could have shown even more of the sex. To be honest, that's true, and it's also kind of weird because I thought I had read something about Arnie Hammer like doing a full frontal scene or something. So I don't know if they no, they should have had that. Yeah, I don't think they had that. I only actually, saw originally butt. in the script, there was more nudity that they took out. Oh. Yeah, I would be and in actually, favor of just going as raunchy with this as possible. Yeah, James Ivory was kind of pissed about that because he was like, oh, yeah, you can show all the naked women you want, but any male nudity. That's true. I mean, true. they still show them, like, hang out in bed, and they're basically naked. You just don't see any. You see a lot of asses, like, naked bodies from the back, I think. Yeah, and there's, like, a topless scene when Maurizia and Elio were having sex. Right. Which I'm glad she wasn't 17 in real life. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, I'm glad he wasn't either. He's like 20-something, 20 22 or something like that. Oh, yeah, and we should mention, like, we, I think we said this earlier, but this is this kid, Timothy Chalamet, who was also in Lady Bird as, like, the asshole Kyle guy. <laughs> yes, he's got the perfect 
pouty face just in this movie and that one is perfect <laughs> there's various moments where they talk about the early greeks and they show like shots and they're talking about how like oh look how nicely muscled they are right the hellenistic not the athenians oh like right because um you do get kind of um a feeling a tension between the father and oliver mm. and then you learn at the end that the father was maybe attracted to men in the past but he married elio's mom and just suppressed that Right. Um, just like as I was saying for the Phantom Thread, when the scene where he sees his mother's ghost, uh, the scene for this movie that really worked for me was actually just like that whole ending scene where the dad is saying, like basically approving of their whole thing and saying like, um, I wrote it down, we rip out so much of ourselves to cure us and we're bankrupt by 30. Um, if we cure ourselves of everything, we feel nothing and that's just a waste. And he's saying like our hearts, our bodies are our best parts. And you should enjoy them because there'll be a time when nobody wants to look or come near you. So don't. Oh my gosh. Pain. That's not true. When he said that, though, I was like, that's not true. Elderly people find love and make love. <laughs> but I will say if this movie had been like an hour long instead of two hours and ten minutes, and if it ended with that same speech, I probably would have liked it a lot more. But as it stands, I think it was like way too long. Mm, I mean, there was a lot of, like, longing in the movie, which made it longer, I guess. Yeah. Um, what else? I don't know. I I feel like that's, yeah, that's fine, because we discussed the peach scene. (laughs) Right, we definitely discussed the peach fucking. Um, Well, this was probably also inspired by other Marcel Proust writings, like, the whole remembrance of time past is also sort of about the same thing. Like his like coming of age and realizing gay things and all that stuff. Oh, I will say I think it made commentary on like the social uh, acceptance of homosexuality because they showed that yeah. even though the Elio came from a very accepting open-minded family and they were like we're fine with right. that we want you to go on a vacation with your boyfriend or whatever um, yeah. that he still was struggling and even his dad couldn't be open to being uh bisexual or gay or whatever right his dad was like i want to go further but i stopped myself yeah so it's just like the society at large the culture around it matters is very strong in our like in in our influence or it influences us a lot yeah um but then it's weird they didn't have the outside world in this at all it was very uh it was a very much a microcosm yeah insular (laughs) There was a nice 80s dance club scene. I just thought it was nice for, like, the mood. Oh, yeah, they did set the... stuff. Yeah, the 83 feel. And there's also this lady, she, like, bikes up. I still don't really know who she was supposed to be, but she looks exactly like uh, the baby character from Dirty Dancing. (laughs) And I was joking that a baby finally got out of the corner. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, there was one woman that he was... Army Hammer was really flirting with. um, That might have been her. Yeah, so she thought that he actually liked her. There was also some nice literary references, but I don't really know if they mean anything. Like, they show the kid, Elio, reading um, Heart of Darkness at one point. I think he might have also been reading Maurice at a different point, but I couldn't quite read Oh, uh, the title. Yeah, he's always reading. He's very uh, into books. Oh, and I thought that was interesting about the female characters, since we mentioned the third lady. Because there's the mom and the girlfriend the brief girlfriend of El, uh, elio and then the 
the guy, the woman that um, Oliver's flirting with. And right. just the way the dad in his speech at the end is like, I don't think your mom knows because Elio wanted to know if mom knew. It's like she obviously yeah. knew she like sent him on the train. So I kind of feel like it's implied that all three women ultimately figured it out. And women are it, just more subtle about things. Yeah, they're sort of like in the background. It's focusing on the the male tensions between each other. I did think that it was just nice that Elio was shown to be like such a sensitive, shy, like sort of afraid and unsure boy, but obviously really smart. Because I think probably a lot of boys feel that way growing up. It's not highlighted ever. Like, yeah. Be, like men are manly. And so I wasn't. Nice that they brought that up. But it's also kind of annoying that it's always like they have to be gay characters too. Well, like yeah, I wasn't feel that way. Oh, that's true. But I wasn't turned off by him. I like that they created a likable. Like I was attracted to their attraction or something because they both uh, did talk about those interesting books that they were reading and stuff. Yeah, I mean, Elio did a great job, and so did Army Hammer. Like I think this is probably the best acting I've ever seen from that guy, mm. just being that character. Oh, and there's also a song that comes on at one point that's uh, up for best soundtrack. It's just a song that talks about Hephaestia and Alexander's lover. So it calls hmm. it out by name. Oh, yeah. Oh, and the, and the general- fashion is funny because it's from the 80s. So they have the, the shirts tucked into the doxer, docker pants, like ca- cargo or khaki pants. And like, I don't know, just funny 80s clothing style. Yeah. And in general, apparently the soundtrack was supposed to be sort of inspired by the fact that he is like this classical pianist. So a bunch of the soundtrack is supposed to be sort of similar in that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's all I had to say about that movie. Okay. <laughs>